the prayer of our hearts that you would be our vision, that Christ would be our vision, that, that our hearts would be pure, and that is to be wholly committed, uh, undistracted, single-minded in our devotion to you, that our faith would truly lay hold of Christ in such a way that we would, with happiness, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. And yet we know, Lord, that our desire to obey you with everything that is in us is hindered by our remaining sin, is hindered by our weakness, is hindered by our ignorance. But for your people, for your children, that is our truest desire. And so keep us always clinging to Christ, always fighting sin, always reaching forward to lay hold of that for which we have been laid hold of, ultimately in the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ and being conformed to the body of your glory, our Lord, in that great day. And so we know how you minister to us in the meantime is through your word, through your eternal word. You protect, teach, shape, convict, train us, rebuke us, encourage us, comfort us. And so we pray that you would do that this morning and particularly prepare us as we come to your table. And we ask all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose for us. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, once again to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 6. You know, pretty much whenever I come to a passage, I always intend to do one message, and then usually a little way through, it's going to be two, Uh, but we seem to be in a pretty good pattern here of taking about three to four for each of the churches, uh, not including some of the side topics that we look at. And and so we come this morning to number four here, and hopefully our last, uh, not because we want to Uh, not uh, look at the truths at Sardis, but because we want to continue to move on through the book of Revelation. Uh, But we'll try to finish this morning in our fourth message here at the look at the church at Sardis. The look at the church at Sardis. And just as a reminder, the church at Sardis, we've titled this because it captures the message of the Lord to it. It is the church of the living dead. The church of the living dead. By calling it a church, it is to say it is a gathering of people who profess the name of Christ, who profess to know Him, who profess to walk with Him, who profess to enjoy His salvation. And yet... Christ, in his evaluation of them and his message to them from heaven, has a very different verdict on them. Uh, he says that you have a name that you are alive, but in fact you are dead. You have a name that you have salvation, that you have experienced the benefits of my atonement, but in fact you are still in your sin. And so it is a, a serious message. It is a message that in many ways, in all of the nuanced ways that this can be true of a church... To be empty and yet have an outward form of religion that we see this throughout the history of God's people, throughout all of God's redeeming work, throughout the nation of Israel, the church in our day, and the history of the church. But it does seem particularly in our day that we are faced with this reality, that there is a wide swath of those who name the name of Christ but seem to demonstrate very little of that reality of it in their life all around the world. As a matter of fact, through much of our history and I don't know what the latest statistics are, but most Americans, a large percentage of Americans, would claim to be born again, would claim to be Christians. Uh, But the reality of that, as you see it worked out in our culture and what they actually do with their lives, tells a very different story. And so Christ addresses that, and we'll, we'll come to the latter part of that message this morning, as we move away from just the focus on the condemnation to his call to repentance and his promise to those who are faithful. Well, let's begin by reading the passage and then we'll, we'll pick it up where we left off. Uh, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Well, as we noted before, the context of Sardis is a church who was at peace largely with the culture around it. It was a church who had a fair amount of influence in terms of the material world. They were very successful in that sense. They were a church who had a history, even through its very secular history, of being susceptible to overconfidence and its strength and falling because of failing to look at its weakness. And that plays into the very situation of the church there within that city. We noted the character of the one who was speaking, namely Christ, and he's speaking as the one who is not only the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, but the possessor of life, one who is one with the Spirit, and therefore the giver of life, the one who stands sovereign over the church, over her messengers, and over her very existence, the one who alone can grant the things that she needs, which is repentance, which is a turning to him. And we notice that he goes immediately into the condemnation of her sin, and that is namely that she is spiritually vacuous, empty, that she has a form of religion, but has denied its power, its saving power, its sanctifying power, that she in fact is active in many ways, in many ways that are good and admired among men, many ways that are helpful to humanity in a broad sense, but are not reflective of the work of the Spirit, and therefore she has many works, but they are not works that demonstrate life, but are actually empty works that will condemn her in her death and in her failure to truly trust in Christ. And we noted that that is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. That is a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture, that there is a kind of external religion that is not grounded in the reality of God's life. One of the most uh, well-known passages of that, although we looked at a couple of others, is Jesus' message to the crowds in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He does not deny that they were doing many things in his name, not even denying in that case that they had a right understanding of his name in terms of basic doctrine. But what he did it, uh, reveal to them that all that they were doing that supposedly for spiritual purposes were actually evaluated by God as being empty as being dead works. And so then he calls to repentance. And that was what we began looking at uh, last week. And he says, remember, that is the first call. Remember what you've received and heard. In other words, remember the gospel that came to you in power at first. Remember the gospel that you received. Remember the gospel that established you as a church in that city at Sardis. Remember the gospel that worked out obedience in your life. You have, you have strayed from that and remember it and go back to where you have come. Remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. And if you do not, therefore, in the middle of verse 3... He says, if you do not, and if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And that is the second part. The first part of the call to repentance is a divine command to remember, to keep, and to repent. And the second part of his call to repentance is a divine warning. It's a divine warning. He says, I will come to you as a thief, like a thief, characteristic of a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So the warning is this, if you do not wake up, Christ is going to bring judgment. He's going to bring judgment. Now what judgment is he talking about here? Well, is he talking about a specific judgment in the history of the church? In other words, a special coming of the Lord to the church in judgment to eradicate her from her position of prominence to... Uh, judge her in that sense or is he referring primarily to the eschatological judgment that judgment that comes at the end of the age that kind of judgment that is attendant with the appearance of Christ on earth uh, it's difficult to say and there really isn't a need to be overly precise in reality every judgment of scripture is an anticipation of the final judgment Every judgment of God uh, on sin throughout all of Scripture is ultimately an anticipation of that great judgment that will come uh, at the end of the age. And so whether he's talking about a judgment that would come to them in their history or if he's focusing on the judgment that will come to all at the end of the age, including those among Sardis who have not repented, it is a judgment that will come. And the judgment will come because of a failure to take pay attention to this warning. It's a judgment that'll come to take 
pay att- because of a refusal to pay attention to this warning. Now, if it came in history, the reality is there is no monumental event in the history of Sardis. If you were to go there now, as with many of these churches, uh, there's no church there. There's no significant church uh, there, any Christian presence. Uh, so in that sense, the church was judged, and it was simply removed from God's program and from God's purposes. But I tend to lean to think that the emphasis here is on the judgment that will come at the end. It is the promise that anticipates a future judgment, a future accountability for their failure, their failure to take heed to their spiritual life. And that is the warning. It's the warning to Sardis, it's the warning to us, and it's the warning to the church throughout the history of the church. And that is this, that spiritual apathy and assumed assurance will bring the surprise of judgment. Spiritual apathy and assumed assurance, assumed salvation without the real work of following Christ will bring judgment. And not only judgment, but the surprise of judgment. Notice what he says. He compares it to you as a thief. And then he says, and you will not know. As a thief, and you will not know. And the the idea of those two statements together is simply this. You will be caught unaware. You will be caught unaware, and you will be caught unaware because you are unprepared. You are unprepared. And that is the reason it will be a surprise. One is because of their preoccupation with the world distracts the mind of considering judgment to them. They are, they are, they are comfortable, and so everything is fine. And number two, it'll be a surprise because not only are they preoccupied with the world, but they have then the assumption of spiritual security without any real foundation. They just assume the reality of salvation rather than considering what that really means. And so he says, because you are unprepared in these ways, judgment's going to come. It's going to come upon you unexpectedly. It's going to come upon you and you will be unaware of its coming and you will be caught in it. And all the more, because it is unexpected, it will be horrific and it will be damning. And so that is the idea of the imagery. The imagery is of surprise and unpreparedness. And it's imagery that's used throughout Scripture. Most often this idea of coming as a thief is associated with this final return of Christ or the return of Christ in judgment, the return of Christ to execute justice on the earth. Let me just remind you of a few passages so you have it in your mind. Uh, We won't spend much time on them, but in Matthew chapter 24, that's clearly behind the Lord's words as he speaks now from heaven. These words he spoke while on earth in Matthew chapter 24. After he had given the great teaching of the Olivet Discourse about the destruction that is to come upon Judah, about the the man of lawlessness who is going to rise, the abomination that is going to be placed within the temple, the great judgment that is going to come upon the people of Israel, and then as he anticipates his return from the clouds and glory and with the Father, as he anticipates that some will be spared and some will be left to experience this judgment, he concludes that in Matthew 24 and verse 42 with this, therefore, and these are the same words uh, used in Matthew, uh, Revelation 3, therefore be on the alert, that's the same word that's translated wake up uh, in, in Revelation 3, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave his master finds, so doing when he comes. In other words, the faithful slave will be prepared for this coming. And while he as well doesn't know that the thief is going to break in the house, when, the, when this time comes for the Lord to return, he will be ready to enter into his blessing, to enter into the blessing to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But the rest will be caught unaware. And for them, he uses this idea of a thief. And it's a simple, simple analogy. If you own a home and you knew somebody was walking up to your house to break into your house, you're going to be ready to confront him. You're going to be ready to take him on. You're going to be ready to protect your family, those who are inside. You are going to be ready for that. Uh, But here he says that many will not be ready. 
Because they will not be looking for his return. They will not be anticipating his return. And they will, as he'll go on later, describe the unfaithful slave, be living for themselves and not too concerned about a coming accountability. He says, if that evil slave, in verse 48, in his heart says, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkenness, the master of that slave will come at a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. He's not expecting him. And then judgment will come. He's not expecting him. Why? Because he's living distracted and consumed by the things of this world, by indulging his own lust. He uses that same example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Again, let me just read it for you to hear it. And here again, he's anticipating the end of the age. And that's really important for us to understand. I just want to emphasize that. We know that. But all of Scripture is focused on the promise. We live in hope. Now, we live as believers in hope of our salvation, the full realization of it. We'll talk about that at the end. But we live in hope of righteousness being established. The Lord told us to pray for that. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray for His kingdom to be established and for His kingdom to come and His will be done, we are praying not only for righteousness to uh, cover the earth as the prophets anticipate, but we are also praying for justice to be met out and that means for sin to be judged for rebellion to be accounted for for ungodliness to be called to account we're, we're in praying that prayer our greatest longing is to see the glory of the Lord from sea to sea but it also includes that everything that doesn't glorify the Lord is judged it's as much a prayer for judgment and so here and so we have to realize, and what the Lord is constantly, and God is constantly in His Word calling us to, is to realize this world is what? It's passing away. That this world is passing away. The, the danger that the Sardis have fallen into and that believers have fallen into throughout the history of the church is to not realize that, to live as, this, as if the things are always going to be as they are in our present experience, and they're not. They're going to pass away. And he says the, the wise slave, the wise person, the wise one who has put their faith in God realizes that and looks and anticipates and is faithful to looking toward that great day. But the unwise person is not. And so here he comes again in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says to the church, Now as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them like labor. Pains come upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But he says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would not overtake you like a thief. And he's not saying then that a believer knows exactly the day and the time, for we don't. No one knows, not even the Son of God, while he was in, on, on the earth. But he is saying this, that you will be ready for it. You will be prepared for it. You will be looking and hastening that day because for you it is a day of salvation. And he says, for you are all sons of light and sons of day in verse 5. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but be on the alert and sober. And so those are the ideas behind his command here. And clearly, even the church that he was addressing knew that. Revelation was one of the last books of the canon, or is the last book of the canon. They had 1 Thessalonians. They had the Gospels. They knew the warnings of the Lord. They knew the teaching. The imagery of the thief would have been in their mind. They understood that. They would have connected that, or they should have that, to the other passages. And know that the Lord is telling them, you are those people. You are those people who will be caught unaware if you do not Consider your condition. So the surprise and the shock of judgment is connected to the unpreparedness of the wicked. The unpreparedness. In general, here's the principle. Those who ignore Scripture, Christ, or assume salvation without a life that seeks after Christ, without the fruit of His life evident in you, you will be caught unaware. And so the warning of Paul to the church at Corinth stands. Test yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. If there is one great danger that we have a tendency towards that can lend itself to producing this kind of false believer, it is to assume salvation. It is to assume it. Without ever taking any consideration of what that salvation looks like when it's real in a person's life. 
without bearing the fruit of it. Now we've talked about some of that in the past. I'm not going to rehash it, but let me just remind you. It is the theology that says that Christ can believe in his saving work and one can be justified but have no experience of sanctification in their life, no obedience in their life, no transformed life. I gave you the example of one teacher out of a school at Dallas. Now, they don't all believe that, but this one is, Zane Hodges, who said that somebody can even later in their life deny Christ and still be counted a Christian because they intellectually believe the truth of the gospel. Or those who think we can play willy-nilly with the, the commands of Scripture and its authority and allow those things that are grossly and explicitly sin into the church with sexuality and so forth. It is to assume salvation is just to assume that everything is fine without considering what repentance is, what faith is, what regeneration produces. So that's his warning there, but I want to move on. In the midst of that, that wraps up what we covered last week. In the midst of that, though, he does give commendation. He does give some hope. He does give some encouragement. And he does, begins that in verse 4. And he moves on now to the commendation from Christ. Commendation from Christ. And he says in verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. What a tremendous, tremendous commendation for those who remained faithful to Christ. And the contrast here is meant to be uh, striking. It's a strong in terms of grammar. It's the strongest way that you can express contrast between two ideas. He says, but would be it. If you were to write that out to emphasize the way that it really is to reflect it, it would be in all capitals. But in contrast to you that, here is a word of hope. You have a few people who have not soiled their garments. It's a word of encouragement to the faithful. And notice here just something that would be easy to go past. I want to highlight it. He says, you may have a note in your Bible. He says, you have a few people there. He actually says, you have a few names there. You have a few names. Now, he used that term earlier in this text to speak of the idea of reputation. He says, you have a name that you are alive. People look at you and they assume you are alive. But here he's using it in the more common sense, in a different sense. He's saying, you have a few names in Sardis. And that's important to say this because it is simply to highlight the fact that he knows them personally. God is aware of them as individuals. God knows those who have remained faithful to him. It's really a very precious term. It's really a very precious way to identify them. It is a way to say, and those who have remained faithful, I know you by name. I know you by name. I know who you are. You are not hidden from my eyes. I am aware of your faithfulness. It's a great encouragement. I thought of a couple of passages when I was... First going through that in Isaiah 43.1, how precious this is, speaking to Israel. He says, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Listen to what he says. He says, you are mine. You are mine. You are my possession. As he said earlier in Exodus 19, of all the nations of the world, you are my possession to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation and kingdom of priests. You are my firstborn, mine called out of all the nations. You belong to me. You belong to me. It's really precious. And you'll remember the words of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John in that wonderful account or imagery of him as the shepherd. He says this in John chapter 10, verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He leads them out. It is to say this, believer, that Christ knows you personally. Now, we know that, but it's good to be reminded of that. He, he calls you, and he says, you are mine. You belong to me. I'm aware of you. I know, where, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. I know your struggles. I know your joys. I know your desires. I know your difficulties. I know your fears. I know your failures. But I also know your faithfulness. I know your faithfulness. I know the choices that you're making internally. I know the choices that you're making externally. I know what you're doing. I'm watching you. It is the idea... That was so beautifully reflected in Psalm 139. He knows our rising up, our lying down. He knows our thoughts before we think them and so forth. He says, you have enclosed me behind and before. You know, you know. And Jesus is affirming that here. I know it's hard. 
And I know who you are. And I know that you have not soiled your garments. You have not soiled your garments. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by you haven't soiled your garments? Well, he may be drawing from the Old Testament law. There may be some reflection of that. If you remember in the Old Testament law, in the ceremonial sense, you could be clean or unclean. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. There was a process of uh, purification that you had to go to to be allowed back into the cultists, the, the worship of the nation, and so on and so forth. And there were other ways you could be unclean. It may be, it may be that he has some of that in his mind. And, and it wouldn't have only been into the people of Sardis uh, there, those Gentiles called out as well, would have had some background in the, of this in their own experience. Uh, there, were a cultural, there was a cultural connection Sardis was well known for their wool and dyeing industry. It might be that he's pulling on that. Even pagan religions had a requirement of clean garments for worship. I mean, those are all possible. The imagery of religious uncleanness would have been understood by both Jew and Gentile. So it's, it's not out of nowhere. But we can be assured that he's not drawing from pagan imagery because nothing within the pagan religions in any way had a biblical concept of holiness and of righteousness and of redemption. So he's not, he's not connecting with that. He may be reflecting the Old Testament imagery and the very general idea, but here he's not really capturing the intent of what the Old Testament passage was about. That was a, a ceremonial kind of uncleanliness because someone touched a dead body did not make them morally unclean. It made them ceremonially unclean. And the process they had to go through for purification didn't cleanse their soul from moral sin and unrighteousness and spiritual defilement, but external defilement. No, he's talking about something much more profound here than either of those ideas. He's referring to spiritual cleanliness. Spiritual cleanliness. Those who are clean because of their genuine faith in Christ as demonstrated by their faithfulness. If not soiled their garment. The idea of garment has been, again, there's been a variety of things you might, I just mentioned them in case you hear them, a baptismal robe or the garment of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ or those kind of things. But the garment here is simply an idea for the true character and testimony of their life. The true character and testimony of their life. There's also been a variety of suggestions as far as what they restrained from, but there's no need to be overly specific because Jesus isn't specific here. It could be idolatry, morality, and go down a list. The idea is best captured Broadly, and in this statement, and I'm borrowing these words, quote, it's those who have not sullied the purity of their Christian life by falling into sin. That's the idea. Those who have not sullied their Christian life by falling into sin, by falling into sin, in patterns of sin, in the habits of sin, they've remained faithful in their discipleship to Christ. And I want to highlight just this about that before we move on, is this is a significant commendation because their faithfulness shines in the midst of a church of such compromise and such opportunity to compromise and to go with the flow, to adopt the culture, to, to make excuses and to rationalize sin. This is a reminder that Christ knows those who don't do that, who remain faithful to his word. It's a reminder of this to us too, beloved. This is the encouragement I want to give is it's a reminder that we are not a slave to the temptations of our culture or the pressures of the world. We're not a slave to it. We're not a slave to it. We don't have to go with the flow. In fact, we should not. We must not. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God is powerful enough to give us the strength to be faithful even in the midst of those who compromise. And of course, Scripture is full of those ideas, of those examples. You have Daniel, famously, who was faithful the nation had compromised. Indeed, they were under judgment. He was in a pagan land. He was enticed with every kind of delicacy, every kind of opportunity to say, oh, well, this is okay. Oh, well, we're in judgment. Oh, well, it's just going to help me to be a witness later and avoid any kind of trouble with the authorities. And Daniel said, no, I will not be unfaithful to my God. And God used him greatly. The same with his friends, uh, renamed anyway, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can think of the example of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 who forsook all of the riches because of his faith of Egypt so that he could be faithful to Christ because he feared the promise of redemption, even that ultimate look and promise of God providing final redemption for his people. The point is simply this, that God has supplied the power and the ability to do so. I know as a parent sometimes, just to 
is a footnote, is, is like, you know, we think sometimes like what this culture that we live in and we realize that at every level, every sphere of the culture we live in, there is a godliness, godlessness. We have what is, would even be a basic kind of common grace biblical morality is denied. We don't have it upheld by political leaders. We have it attacked by media and everybody in the, the celebrity kind of world. The educational system is a direct attack on anything that has to do with biblical morality and even the basic foundation of society like marriage and the family. Even within the Christian church, a lot of times where the kids go to, there's no support of a true and a deep faithfulness to Christ and understanding of doctrine. And where is it that for many Christians, where is the only place that their children are hearing the truth? In the home. In the home. This is, this is again a footnote, but it connects here and it's important. And so that can be worrisome. It's like, oh no, this is the only place, but here is the confidence of the Christian God saves and he sanctifies through the power of his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the greatest resource. You could have Christians who were saved and you think of the early church and there was nobody around who understood the gospel and was following with Christ. And they were thrust into this culture where everybody looked at them as strange or as apostatizing from their true heritage in the early church when Jews were converting. You can imagine the insanity of the message. They didn't have 2,000 years of church history and you've got this preaching going out into this totally pagan world and saying oh yeah by the way this Jewish rabbi who claimed to be God is uh, was crucified on a cross and your salvation depends on him and yet the spirit of God took that unlikely message and that unlikely proclamation and he formed the church and it grew and it ended up having greater influence on than anything else and changed the world of course and so the point here is simply this, that greater is he is in you than he who is in the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. These few held on to that. These few held on to that, and they were faithful. They said, we don't have to compromise. We don't have to go the way of the world. We're going to stay true to Christ. Even though those others who profess to be Christians are compromising, we will not. We will not do it. So Christians will struggle and stumble, but, like, but if Christ is in you, then by His Spirit you have the ability to persevere, you have the ability to be holy, and you have the ability to glorify Christ in this world. Let me just give one other just brief mention here. Uh, Psalm 73, you're familiar with it. The psalmist there, Asaph, said, you know, I, I was like a... I almost stumbled. I almost stumbled. I looked at the world and I saw how arrogant they are and how everything's easy for them and they seem to have no problems and here I am trying to be faithful and I'm suffering and it's hard. They don't seem to have any pains and yet I've got pain. They don't seem to have any worries and struggles and yet I've got them all the time and more do they do. And I almost, I almost thought like a beast, like an unthinking animal and I almost envied them. And then he said he came into the sanctuary of God, his, his perspective was, was turned around to think according to reality and according to truth. He knew that judgment was coming and then he ends the psalm with these words. He says, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. He was tempted to go along with the culture. He was tempted to go along with the wicked. He was tempted to compromise on faith to the God of Israel in that context. He was tempted to minimize redemption and the covenant and turn over to what was easy. But then he began to think rightly. And that's essentially reflected here. Jesus is warned and says, look, when you think rightly, you know judgment is going to come. Those who have compromised and seem to have things easier now, they're going to be held accountable. And it's going to come surprisingly. It's going to come as a surprise to them. They're going to be unprepared. But you be faithful. You be faithful and know that God is able to sustain you in that faithfulness where you are. God is able to uphold you. He's able to give you delights greater than what they seem to be enjoying. And then he, and then he 
gives this wonderful statement. He says, they are worthy. They will walk with me or white, for they are worthy. And now he moves on then to the covenant promise of hope. The covenant promise of hope. And he says this. You have a few people who haven't soiled their garments. And I guess I, I wouldn't be faithful if I didn't ask you know, all of us who are here, even this morning. Do you feel like compromising? What is it that directs you to right and wrong? What is it, what is it that has the greatest tug on your heart? What is it that you're tempted in to compromise? Understand that Christ is a great Savior... Where there is sin, He is ready to receive all who are repentant. And He is able to make you stand strong against whatever temptation that you're facing in your workplace, in your heart, in your personal walk with the Lord. He is able to enable you to stand. But you must draw near to Him. You must ask Him to draw near to you. We want to be counted faithful and not compromised. And so He says here, and what is the reward? They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You will walk with me in white. This is a magnificent promise. And it touches the saint, the true Christian, at the level of their deepest desires. At the level of your deepest desires, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is your deepest desire, what is the basic point then? Is this... That those who struggle and have struggled with the battle for faithfulness, for purity, and for obedience here will one day know the end of that struggle. Will one day know the end of that struggle. It will come to an end. If you are a believer, you will be like Christ. The perfect fullness of His life and the presence of the, Holy, of the Spirit in our experience will be made known to its fullest possible extent and intention of God. Now, there are three basic promises here, and I'm going to just have to look at these quickly. But three basic promises. The first is this. We will walk with Him in white. The idea there is we will fully experience the reality of our union with Christ. That's a way to capture it. The second is this. We will not be erased from the book of life. You will walk in Him with white. You will not be erased from the book of life. And He will confess your name before the Father and His angels. Let's look at these. First, the promise is this, if you hold on, if you remain faithful, if you don't compromise, you will walk with him in white. It's a marvelous statement. There's a marvelous statement connected to the idea of overcoming, overcoming the world. What does it mean to overcome the world? Overcoming the world with its lust, with its lies, with its temptation to be unfaithful. He says, if it's a picture of believers participating, some see here primarily as a, a picture of believers participating in a victory parade. That wasn't uncommon for victors to come in and for those who were among the crowds to be wearing white. And that, that certainly is possibly the idea here and it was included the idea, but I don't think it's the main idea. It's not the main idea. He's saying, you will walk with me in white. It's attached to overcomer. Yeah, this is, there is the idea of that, that victory and being in the victory. But the language takes us into something much more special than, than simply being counted a victor. It is to be counted a victor in the full experience of that victory and the one who has won it for us. In other words, the full intimacy of our union with him. Let's consider that. You will walk with me in white. You will be clothed in white. It's an expression, a common way to express holiness and to express purity. We can think of other examples of that. Uh, there, we could go to the Old Testament, but just staying in the New Testament, you can think on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ? He was there with Moses and Elijah. And what did his clothes become like? White. There's a sense of glory. There's just a kind of glory there. There's the presence of God, but it communicates holiness. It communicates purity. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He used that same imagery to speak of Christ in the, the vision of John. And you remember in verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, the idea there expressing his holiness and his purity. And in fact, a divine holiness and a divine purity because he's pulling from the imagery. We've noted that in Daniel chapter 7, even of the ancient of days was white, had a white hair. It's holiness, it's purity. It's, it's spoken here of Christ. 
It is a a picture of His glory in that way. He uses it later to speak of the idea of justification, the idea of being counted righteous in Christ. Look at verse, or just hear me. Verse 14 of uh, Revelation 7, he says, My Lord, you know when he's looking at a great multitude in this vision, he said, Who are these? And he said, the angel answered and said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And listen, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have turned to Christ and His atoning blood has washed away their sins. They have been made clean. They have been made white. They have been given robes of white that picture that that righteousness of Christ that they have been made to share in through His death and resurrection. You have that again in Revelation 22.10. Do not seal up or Revelation chapter 22. It's the idea of them being in white and white. It also has the idea of sanctification. It also has the idea of sanctification. And as we've noted before, these cannot be separated. In Revelation 19.7, let me just give you a couple of examples. Here it's not the imagery of white robes, but of fine linen. And he says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous Acts of the saints. There's picking up on that imagery of a white garment. It's clean and it's, it's bright, it's effulgent, and it's the righteous act of the saints. He says in verse 14, And the armies which will return with Christ when He comes from heaven to judge the earth are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And they were following Him on white Horses. It has this, this sense of holiness and purity. It is that purity that comes from being counted clean and righteous in Christ. It has the idea of those who have been clean, counted clean in Christ, demonstrate that through their life. They're the righteous deeds of the saints. And we noted you can't separate those two things. And so in here, he says that, that you will clothe yourselves in white. They will walk with me in white. Is speaking that there will be a day when there will be a you in my presence. And you will know the holiness and purity that you're struggling for now. But you'll know it in its fullness in the time to come. Ultimately, it anticipates the promise of the full realization of our salvation. Let me disconnect it with this idea. Now consider this. He says in Ephesians 1, he says these words. He says that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And look at verse 4 if you're there. He says in the middle of that, he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be what? Holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. Listen to how he says it in Colossians chapter 1. He has reconciled you through his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Listen to what Jude says in Jude chapter 24 or verse 24. He says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. If you are a Christian, stop and think about that. You will stand in the presence of an infinitely holy God with a majesty and a glory and an awesomeness to His presence that we can't even fathom. And He will look at you in the blazing light of His glory, look at you counted in Christ, in union with Christ, and He will count you holy and blameless. Now, if you know something, if you are a Christian, if there's one thing you know as well as anything else, you are not holy and you are not blameless. You're not. As a matter of fact, the more you grow at the Christian, you realize you more realize how much unholiness and blamelessness exists in you. If you are here and you're not a Christian, and you feel the weight of your sin and you're struggling with your sin and you know that you're corrupt, you know you're not living a life that's right, you know that if you were to die that you would be held accountable for your sin and you feel the weight and the burden of that, you feel the guilt of it, you feel the shame of it, then the promise is for you and hope that you can come to Christ and one day be counted before Him even in all of your filthy rags that you have now. You can be counted before Him clothed in Christ's righteousness and be counted holy and blameless. 
That's the longing. That's the promise. That's the longing of the heart of a believer. As a matter of fact, he puts it in this most beautiful and wonderful way in Ephesians chapter 5. And I just at least want to mention this. And he puts it in the context of marriage. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be what? Holy and blameless. That she would be holy and blameless. And then he goes back to Genesis 24 and he talks about the the one flesh relationship of the husband and the wife. And he says, but actually, I'm referring to Christ and to the church. He made pure for himself a holy bride, a holy bride, to be holy and blameless before him, to reflect his glory, to reflect his life, to reflect his righteousness that he delights in and he delights to see it in his people. And he died to create that in his people and a people who would share in his holiness and who would be blameless before him. As a matter of fact, that's the great promise, isn't it? The marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Then he said in verse 9 of Revelation 19, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These words are true, true words of God. It's a great illustration. It's a beautiful illustration. When we have a traditional marriage ceremony, what does the bride wear? She wears white. She wears white. Now, that's done out of tradition, and not everybody who wears white should be in that sense. But if we were just to take that on its own and say it's really a wonderful picture, though, isn't it, of the church being presented to Christ in all of her glory, Blameless. When the bride walks down in white, there is a picture there of purity, a picture of holiness, a picture of a union that is pure, the covenant, the keeping, a oneness, the flesh that will be forever and permanent in that case on, on this earth, but ultimately to picture what is permanent and cannot be broken through all eternity, and that's the church's union with Christ. And so he says, those, they will walk with me in white. So ultimately, it's looking to this time. And he says, you're going to be be clothed in these white garments in verse 5. You who overcome. Because your life and the reality of your faith is proved by your faithfulness to me. You have not soiled your garments. And again, look at that phrase. And they are worthy. They are worthy. Of course, they are not worthy in the sense of their obedience. It's not that I've lived a good enough life and then been counted worthy. It's not that I, I met some standard of holiness that therefore then God said, well, you, you finally passed over that line and now you can be in my presence holy and blameless with great joy as if there's some kind of law. That's, a, that's exactly what Paul said to the Galatians. If you want to live by law, you have to be perfect in the whole thing. But, but Christ has borne the curse for us. We don't live by law. He says we live by faith. We live in the Spirit. We live by trusting Him who died for us. But He says you are worthy. What does He mean by you are worthy? It's really, a, in some ways, I think a reflection of the very heart and the attitude of Christ towards those who obey Him in the most difficult circumstances. He is uniquely glorified by it. He's uniquely pleased by it. He's happy to say they are worthy. It's not... It's, it's, it's the sense that Paul uses the term in Ephesians 4.1 uh, where he says walk worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of the gospel. Walk in a way that manifests the glory of Christ and the gospel and the glory of Christ. And, and Christ says that these are the ones who have done that. And I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that. It's a life that pleases Him. He's honored by our obedience. He's honored by our obedience. And the reality is that the greater the difficulty of our obedience, the more glory that goes to Christ when we trust Him. And so he says here, man, you've had great, you've had a hard time. You've had other people who have compromised. You have those who claim Christ and yet they're not demonstrating it in their life. You live with affluence. You live in peace. You live with all kind of ways you could rationalize, compromise with sin, compromise with truth. You can make things easier in your life, but you haven't done that. And I'm glorified by it. And he says, they are worthy. They are worthy. And then he promises that we will walk with him. And that is a precious promise that has four pages of notes that I can't do in two minutes. 
And I don't want to just say it, so we will wrap it up next week. But here's the encouragement I want to come to here, that when we come to the Lord's table, as we come to the Lord's table, and we take these elements and we eat the bread and the wine, we have the gospel displayed. It's the whole gospel displayed. It is a picture of what Christ has done for us. We proclaim the Lord's death, he says. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim His resurrection. We, pro- we proclaim His current exaltation. We proclaim his, his, Him as King. We proclaim Him as Lord. We proclaim Him as Savior. And when we take these elements, we're saying that I have committed my life to that. That's why they're for believers, not for unbelievers. It's for Christians. We're saying that I have, I have trusted in Christ and I live daily in this communion with Him that I'm seeking. I feed on the manna of His Word and I seek to live by it. I'm one who is dealing with sin in my thought life and in my attitudes and in my actions and I'm doing battle there. I'm one who is seeking to walk with Him in righteousness and when I fail and I do all the time, I'm going to Him and remembering that I'm made acceptable by God only because I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. Only because He has made me clean. Because He is my life. He is my hope. He is my salvation. God has done this for me. And I have but to trust Him and to live consistent with what He's done. And so when we come to the table, we're saying those things. We're acknowledging before the world that we are the body of Christ. Indwelled by His Spirit. We're acknowledging before the world that His judgment won't overtake us like a thief. Because we're anticipating His coming and we're preparing our lives for that. We're saying that we are not going to be a people then who compromise. We're not going to be a people who take the easy way, but take the faithful way, the obedient way, the true way. And so God has established us that we could be reminded of these truths and more and be encouraged in our faithfulness, be encouraged to walk with Him and encourage one another to do the same. So let me pray and the men will bring the elements and then we'll take them together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, let us be like those faithful that you addressed there in Sardis. Lord, the world, the, the church has, has compromised in so many ways around us. And it's not new to our age, but we live in the midst of it. Lord, help us to be the few that are faithful. Let us not compromise with the world's definition of sexuality or of truth. Let us not be ashamed as we'll look at Next week, to name the name of Christ and to say what is true and what is right, no matter how much it contradicts the, the ideologies of those in power, those who influence culture. Let us be faithful. Of course, in some ways, Lord, that's the easier way. Help us to be faithful in personal relationships, in family, in our workplace, where it's easier there and maybe some way we could compromise and it would seem nobody else would know, but let us not. Because internally we were walking with you and seeking faithfulness in our motivations and our intentions. Let us be willing to stand against the grain and be found faithful and among the few who have not soiled our garments when we feel the pressures of friend groups and employees and neighbors and so forth. But to stand faithful. And we know that you will enable us because if we know you, you have given us your spirit, you have given us your word, and that is enough. Let us lay hold of them and do your work in us, Holy Spirit. And even now as we consider these great truths in the table, encourage our hearts, remind us of grace, and secure and make more confident our hope in the future when we'll be with you forever. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.